Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from thousands of successful individuals from around the world. I'm your host, Ashutosh Garg, and today I'm privileged to welcome a very, very senior professional from Washington, D.C., USA, Mr. Guru Madhavan. Guru, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ashutosh. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, Guru is the Norman R. Augustine Senior Scholar and Senior Director of Programs uh, at the U.S. National Academy of Engineering. He has contributed to the research and development of cardiac surgical catheters for ablation therapy and neuromuscular stimulators for improving blood circulation. He has served as a vice president of IEEE USA and was a founding member of the Global Young Academy. He's been named as a distinguished young scientist by the World Economic Forum. And of course, with this kind of background, he's been awarded, felicitated, and recognized several times. So Guru, before we talk anything about the National Academy, tell me a little bit about your own journey. Um, thanks, Ashutosh. I, I was uh, born and brought up in uh, India. Um, I uh, uh, fell into engineering pretty much like how an Indian arranged marriage works. So mm -hmm. pretty much everyone around me was doing that. So I entered it. But I think I really fell in love with engineering years later uh, when I recognized the true significance of what it meant uh, from a historical, from a philosophical, from a sociological and a public policy perspective. Now, this is something that's not explicitly presented when you're training in engineering. Of course, you get trained in the nitty gritties and so forth. But I think um, over um, the years after I became an engineer, it became abundantly clear that kind of the broader consequences and the cultural responsibility engineering has had since the outset of humanity. Right. Uh, it may have been the original choice we as humans may have done when we started building tools. So it was simultaneously a survival strategy, a coping mechanism, mm -hmm. and a vision setting uh, platform mm -hmm. uh, for us to take one route over the other. Mm -hmm. So. In a, in a much richer sense, that's how I really uh, understood the, the deeper significance of engineering. Mm -hmm. uh, it was basically years after I became an engineer. Mm -hmm. You know, you're so right about how you just said that you were introduced to engineering almost like an arranged marriage. I'm much older and I remember we only had three careers, doctor, lawyer, engineer, and I didn't get into any of them. Yeah, so, and I think in an Indian context, it's basically all of the above, absolutely. the multiple choice. <laughs> absolutely. Know. So let's talk about the National Academy of Engineering. You know, you told me about how you got interested in engineering, but you decided to focus on the field of complex systems and how they interact with humans. Uh, tell me a little more uh, in, in easy to understand terms. Sure. Uh, my undergraduate and kind of early engineering career uh, focused on um, the the kind of the, the, the themes of controlled systems. How, how do you make a refinery run efficiently? Mm. How do you uh, think of uh, manufacturing systems that produce toothbrushes to cars? Mm. Uh, mm. And so how do we really uh, organize the systems uh, that are goal-bounded, uh, deeply constrained by cost, schedule, mm. technical requirements? So we were looking at the controllables principally. And in some instances, they need not uh, involve humans at all. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, what mattered was whatever is coming out of the systems that you're designing, mm -hmm. if it is actually uh, being uh, applied in a way that's adding convenience and comfort to humans. Mm -hmm. So that's how I was thinking about it. Mm 
-hmm. However, after coming to the United States and uh, pursuing my graduate work and my industry work really led to a deeper revelation that uh, I think bulk of our um, systems are more uh, complex than the ones that can be easily controllable. Mm. And uh, trouble begins when you treat a complex system that adapts and behaves, has its own strategies, mm. uh, so to speak, and you try to control it. That's where the trouble begins. Mm. You, the moment you try to tame an untamable system, so now you're operating in the realm of uh, kind of um, uh, wicked uh, systems, but not necessarily, uh, because some of them can be um, uh, you know, shaped to achieve certain resolutions over, say, solutions that are more mathematically amenable and so mm -hmm. forth. Mm -hmm. um, but that's uh, to just give you kind of a, a hierarchy very briefly on the kinds of problems that uh, kind of are involved in a complex system. Okay. First, you have something what I would call a hard system, which are defined by customers, uh, explicitly suggested by sponsors, so to speak, and there is a market need for it. Mm -hmm. And uh, engineers have done a fantastic job in basically honing the territory. Um, they can be materially solved, mathematically manipulated, and mm -hmm. so forth. Like engineering an ATM system or coming up with a barcode system where you can put a, a sticker on every avocado and banana and track it from a source to uh, extinction. Uh, and so basically every perishable good has an imperishable barcoded identity in a way we all do. So engineering has done very well there. Mm -hmm. The second class is uh, maybe soft problems where you have the political and the behavioral complications that add more nuances than the, than uh, possible by numbers to understand them. Mm -hmm. Like uh, thinking of traffic, you cannot really solve that problem per se. You can only go so far by adding more capacity by new bridges, uh, roads even. Those are kind of hard solutions that don't really work for a soft uh, problem set like this. So you have to really think in terms of a psychological willingness to pay, mm -hmm. so to speak. How much are you willing to pay for a using a service when the demand for it is at its highest, like using a road during peak hour. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that kind of brings together the kind of the economic theory, the kind of the broader philosophy of fair pricing and the human psychology of willingness to pay. How much are you willing to pay to cross a bridge mm -hmm. uh, at X, Y, and Z yeah. versus taking a tunnel, which is completely free mm -hmm. um, uh, at a certain time, which is a little bit uh, uh, away from the bridge. The third one, I think this is where the hard and the soft problems interact to mm. produce a kind of messiness. So in a messy problem, what you do is um, you cannot necessarily solve a problem or resolve a problem like you did for traffic. Mm. But you have to think of something entirely different. You have to begin transforming the problem. So you mm. have to start dissolving it, which means you have to completely reshape the problem uh, out of existence. Mm -hmm. And uh, engineers are extremely good at uh, doing one or two things here. And, and, a, and a basic engineering concept that works here that I use routinely that's helpful to make a better sense of messy problem is a fast Fourier transform. So it's a mathematical theory where you're collecting all sorts of data in the time domain mm. as it comes in its velocity, variety, and so forth. It makes no sense to you because they're all in very different patterns. They're trying to say something you don't. And I think our cognition doesn't really work that way. Mathematically, if you convert it, basically invert it into the frequency domain, mm -hmm. you start seeing spikes. 
you wow. start seeing pattern in a much more different way. So what was not possible to view in a time domain makes mm -hmm. crystal clear sense in a frequency domain. Mm -hmm. Not all problems can be converted into frequency domain. It requires a very different kind of a cognitive capacity to do that. Mm -hmm. But I think this is the kind of transformation we're talking about messy problems. When it, I'll give an example. How do you think of uh, local traditions, whether it relates to cleaning of the river Ganges in India, mm -hmm. which I've about in Varanasi. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are many different ways to approach that. You can you can uh, encapsulate that as an urban development problem, bring it as uh, like and develop malls around it and so forth. But at the same time, how do you uh, actively incorporate uh, mm -hmm. local rituals uh, into the engineering of it? Now that's a messy problem. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it doesn't uh, fall within the standard hard and the soft criteria. Mm -hmm. So wickedness emerges with a mixture of all these three right. hard, soft and messy problems that requires a complex systems approach innately. Mm -hmm. Wow, what a great response, thank you. Uh, Guru, you've also written about the importance of interdisciplinary co collaboration and the need to bring together experts from different fields to tackle complex challenges. And, you know, a few minutes back, you've spoken about two, three different types of examples, you know, whether it's a tunnel example or a traffic light or the river Ganges. Uh, how do you see collaboration? And now that you are also working on G20 related matters with people across the world. How do these collaborations work and what needs to be done to make them effective? A, a fundamental impediment that uh, we have, um, and I think we have gotten good in terms of uh, uh, what we might call hypercognition, which is like we are used to the, the sheer velocity of information mm. coming at us. Whether we are successful at it, whether we are effective at it, is a different story. We have gotten used to it. Mm. So hypercognition exists that way. But my real problem and what I think is the serious uh, challenge that we have, both within engineering as pro or in general professional or business development, is hypocognition, the exact opposite, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is our competencies are fundamentally limited by what we can conceive. Mm -hmm. And that links to our tendency to unthinkingly apply familiar, comfortable frameworks that we have cultivated over years on pretty much anything that's in front of us, even mm. if that framework is irrelevant or inept. Mm. And uh, the example that comes to mind is like, uh, this is in the early 1800s when the Americans tried to um, introduce ice blocks mm -hmm. in the island uh, of Martinique. Um, and uh, the concept of icebox was so foreign to that island. They didn't know what to do with it. Right. They just let it sit there and icebox melted. <laughs> now we know the value of icebox. You know, we freeze everything. And uh, of course, the, the entire refrigerated uh, grocery industry exists because mm -hmm. of that thing. But mm -hmm. at one point in time, it was an utterly foreign concept. Right. Naturally, it takes time for us to think through this. So clearly, let's attach significant value to the time mm -hmm. there. But it also involves us thinking at least in a few other dimensions than what we are naturally um, comfortable in doing. Mm -hmm. And an individual may or may not have that facility or the time or the responsibility to do so, which mm -hmm. naturally leads us to uh, think a little bit external, which um, which uh, requires a more collaborative uh, approach uh, to mm -hmm. thinking about complex problems like the ones that we have touched upon here. Mm -hmm. um, that's also important to understand um, uh, how failures actually happen. And uh, this is something that's deeply interesting to me because the way I see engineering and one of the other compelling factors in engineering is you're simultaneously 
at any point in time, maybe even at the same time, mm -hmm. operating between the bounds of wonder and worst case scenarios. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, both of them are required for engineering to do this. And mm -hmm. sure, you you lead a restless life that way, but that, that's, that's one, something that I've chosen to live with. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at how failures happen in a systemic level, you got a bunch of different entities um, um, or uh, units that let's say compose a system. Let's say in a university, it's departments or uh, government agencies or corporate offices and so forth. Each of them following their own strategies for success, survival, reproductive fitness, if you want to use the evolutionary metaphor kind of thing. Each of them following their own strategies. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean a system is adaptive. Some of these systems might actually work against each other cross purposes. They might actually bring the overall strength of the system. Now, this is what you would call a CAS2 system, complex adaptive system two which mm -hmm. means there's another one, which is CAS1, which the overall system itself operates holistically, mm -hmm. cogent, mm -hmm. compellingly, like uh, an immune system works, mm -hmm. like an ant colony. It's a well coordinated strategy. Mm -hmm. And one thing leads to another. Every step is interlinked with the other kind of thing. So mm -hmm. now the real design question here is, if I can provocatively use that in an evolutionary mm -hmm. sense, mm -hmm. the real engineering problem is, how do you convert a CAS2 system into a CAS1 system? Mm -hmm. Now, that may become the policy question of our time, wherever mm -hmm. we are talking about any big problem like climate, hunger, um, population issues, uh, wildlife management. Mm -hmm. How do you convert CAS2s into CAS1? Mm -hmm. It's a profound question. And I think this is where what we don't talk about is we are really good at understanding complex adaptive systems. We have a good sense of how these things work and we have done so at least in literature for the past 60, 70 years. But I think practicing engineers have had these insights maybe for millennia when they built Indus Valley civilization and even before some of the native traditions and so mm. forth. So I think they had the intuitive sense there, maybe not mm. the literary sense. Mm. But now we need to be thinking about complex maladaptive systems, how things go wrong and how one uh, uh, cascades into another. Mm. Sounds very negative and pessimistic, but no, it's actually crucial. And this is where it takes us to the kind of the, between the wonder and the worst case thinking. Mm. So mm. collaboration is deeply essential to bring uh, the kind of diversity of questions to address basic, simple questions, mm. not advanced, sophisticated questions. Amazing. You know, you make engineering seem so uh, easy to understand and what you're talking of such complex topics. But my next question to you, Guru, is that how can engineers balance the need for innovation and progress uh, around ethics and social responsibility, particularly in fields like artificial intelligence and biotechnology, areas that you work on? Yeah, um, so I think this is a subject uh, um, that's uh, pertinent, um, both for countries, uh, India, the United States, or even the European Union at large, yeah. I think. Uh, our decision makers are grappling with the issue of how do you uh, bring more innovation into service sectors, for mm -hmm. example, and uh, how that uh, could uh, lead to uh, mass employment mm -hmm. uh, and uh, what that means uh, for a circumstance, whatever that may be according to the country. Correct. Um, but the, the, the caution that one needs to take is, um, however vital and important innovation is. We shouldn't resort to uh, making innovation the default mm -hmm. approach uh, mm -hmm. for uh, economic development and so forth. And I want to add a little bit more clarity here because 
having real innovation is very different than the innovation speak around it. Mm. Um, and uh, I've, uh, I, I have a business degree as well. So I've heard quite a bit about uh, uh, the notions of disruptive innovation and why uh, a kind of a, a more uh, creative, disruptive approach is the way to achieve success in a particular area or whatnot mm. through that. And I still hear that. Mm. Uh, it's a profound narrative. Um, and, uh, but, uh, but in doing so, what are we missing out or mm -hmm. what are we losing? Or what other vital engineering responsibilities? I'm specifically thinking about maintenance, which is a dull, boring subject. It's a chore. It takes a lot of effort. I mean, I have to do my laundry, my trash. We all have those kind of basic uh, uh, But how do you think of maintenance from a societal, cultural mm -hmm. uh, context? I mean, bulk of the infrastructure development we are talking about, whether it's India or in the United States, relate to maintenance. When you think of infrastructure, it is nothing but maintenance. Mm -hmm. um, however, maintenance can also get better by new innovative measures, such as uh, artificial intelligence and like remote sensing technologies and so forth. But exclusively focusing on artificial intelligence misses the kind of the broader mm, uh, purpose mm. here. And this is where I, I want to uh, bring in uh, the idea from a scholar, Byron Newberry, who I think once differentiated engineering using adjectives, two adjectives. First mm. is the kind of the thing adjective, like you're focused on chemical, mechanical, boilers, refineries, cars, mm. uh, robots, and whatnot. So engineering that's focused on the thing. But then there is the issue mm -hmm. adjective which is environment, health, intelligence, however we define. And how do you kind of effectively uh, mix together? But the moment you start to think about the thing as the goal, you're missing out the broader um, mm. element here. So mm. that's precisely what's happening here uh, by exclusively focusing on the innovation speak, we are missing out uh, on the fundamental value that maintenance provides. Without maintenance, there is no civilization. Without Correct. maintenance, there's no innovation. Correct. Um, and I think uh, um, that's where uh, we need to bring in some of the broader perspectives of what does it mean to care for, what to repair, uh, rejuvenation, renewal, um, all those things mean in the broader uh, right. uh, context. They're not just mere inconvenience fixing solutions, but mm -hmm. I think they are far more vital and about uh, three-fourths of engineers work in maintenance, uh, but that is seldom recognized. Mm. Um, I'd rather be in a position where uh, my system doesn't disruptively fail than me going and actively disrupting an ecosystem. <laughs> well said. And therefore, you know, your answer gives me a segue into my next question, which is that as an engineer, as someone who's achieved so much in life, what is the one thing you wish more people understood about the work of engineers? Um, which is a, it is a, it is a, a profession that's deeply rooted in care. Uh, and, uh, even though it is not, um, explicitly advertised such, uh, by care, we are talking about a much deeper social responsibility that transcends the kind of the ethics. I mean, of course, uh, in engineering failures are extremely costly. We try to avoid those things. Uh, and these failures could have multi-generational consequences. Mm -hmm. And uh, the within that care, uh, and I think this is something that I've uh, uh, talked about in my previous book, where the elements of bringing structure where there's none. And uh, this is something all humans do. But in engineering, the practical consequences are enormous. And like, how do you think of a bridge 
before such a thing even exists in your mind's eye. You have to feel the load of the bridge on your shoulders, kind of model the stresses and the strains and how they come back. This is, um, this is something uh, that's particularly unique uh, to um, uh, engineers. Of course, artists can draw a bridge uh, yeah. uh, as well, but in engineering, it's a very different uh, meaning. So structure is okay. essential there. But that leads to, you cannot have a bridge of your thinking there. It has to operate under constraints, including Absolutely. the forces of gravity, the mm -hmm. physical loss gravity. of nature, the economic uh, things, and the budget and the time and the schedule, whatnot. Um, so you're always operating under uh, constraints. The third one is perhaps uh, vital in integrating the first two elements because engineering is a sacrificial profession. It, it understands the fundamental human limit that you cannot have everything you want in life. So you have your forced to make trade-offs. Um, so the act of making judicious trade-offs, one at the expense of another, but ultimately achieving the objective is something crucial. So kind of the structure constraints and trade-offs together is what I call the one, two, three punch of the engineering mindset. Now, how do we fruitfully apply these concepts to um, the, the notions of care and, uh, uh, and prosperity? Uh, in society it's a philosophical question that's mm -hmm. applicable to engineering rather than an engineering question applicable to philosophy well said well said guru i want to talk a little bit about your books uh, you've written several books and you've got a new one coming out tell me a little bit about some of your books well my first uh, attempt at uh, kind of popular non-fiction mm -hmm. kind of a, kind of a narrative storytelling was, was applied minds how uh, engineers think. Um, and uh, in it, I discuss uh, some of the uh, concepts that I just talked about, the structure, constraint, and trade-offs, and how it manifests differently in, um, uh, in different um, um, settings. And uh, I take a, a complete narrative approach. Um, uh, it's, it's very much like uh, you can have uh, an engineering mindset uh, in different contexts, and they might not even look the same. Hmm. Uh, um, uh, so even if you're trying to engineer something in the city of Chennai, and that's going to be very different than what might materially work in the city of Chengdu hmm. uh, or Chantilly here. So hmm. uh, I think how do we uh, move across the kind of the context in a kind of an evolutionary sense is what I was trying to uh, get at. Hmm. But that book uh, led me to um, uh, oftentimes, you know, you have to resort to stories that have uh, a nice beginning and a nice ending with a twist mm -hmm. in the middle kind of thing. But the, the world of complex systems doesn't work that way mm -hmm. because the surprises are usually in the end <laughs> where you just don't even know. And sometimes that surprise becomes a whole new beginning mm -hmm. uh, for another one. So it's like a relay race of complexity. Mm -hmm. And that has informed uh, my uh, next book, which I've just completed, which is all about the wickedness. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the essential, you know, we might, uh, the world is such that, uh, you know, in contentious topics, people disagree on what they're the weakness. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's how the democratic discourse yeah. has become these yeah. days, yeah. amplified, fueled by uh, online technologies and so mm -hmm. forth. So we might disagree on the problem formulation, definitely on the problem solution, mm -hmm. uh, or or the what kind of the, the prospects for it rather. Mm -hmm. But we might be more agreeable on the fundamental concepts that lead us to uh, some of those uh, states. So I'm looking at the kind of the preconditions of problem mm -hmm. formulation mm -hmm. and uh, problem solutions and resolutions, so to speak. 
So um, that has uh, taken um, um, some effort. Of course, it's also heavily narratively driven, but I'm trying to bring out uh, the different uh, uh, typologies, uh, textures of, uh, of problems that might be useful for a broad range of people mm -hmm. beyond um, engineering. But of course, I've also had forays into kind of uh, uh, political science, psychology uh, with a colleague. Uh, uh, I worked on a book uh, um, that grew out of uh, how we make choices, especially mm -hmm. through voting systems, which are largely standardized, yeah. but we all have unstandard expectations of the world around us and every decision. Uh, uh, try buying a shoe from a store, you have so many option sets. And uh, yet, so yet we are trying to, we are trying to force our decision structures to pick one among these three things, which goes contrary to the kind of the option sets that we try to make available right. in the yeah. market. So in a way, um, that's also an engineering problem here. I mean, you can have 100,000 cars <laughs> uh, with different uh, models at any time. Sorry. You still have to uh, pick one and go. So that kind of took us into how do we bring in human factors that is kind of uh, elements of systems engineering into decision theory. Mm. Plus, and finally, uh, uh, I've had uh, some deep interest in the philosophical roots of uh, engineering, design, innovation, maintenance. Mm. What I mean, how do we make the profession or professionals more reflective mm -hmm. of, uh, of the work that we are carrying out? Mm. Um, too often, engineers are busy because they're in a larger corporation or they are responding to a specific task, mm. even to a contract or a business need and so forth. They they might be privately reflective, but uh, may not have the opportunity to be professionally reflective. Mm -hmm. So we are trying to make some headway into um, uh, that uh, arena here. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of a sampling of the early work. And you said your new book is due early next year. That's correct. Yeah, I'm, I'm delivering the, my final manuscript later this Wonderful. month, and it should be available early next year. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. So I'm going to ask all our viewers and listeners to go and check out Mr. Guru Madhavan's books on Amazon. But Guru, we've run out of time now. I could have carried on speaking to you for another half an hour, but maybe I will schedule something in a few months uh, on the book that's coming out now. But thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. Thank you for speaking to me about your incredible journey in the world of engineering. Thank you for speaking to me about so many different aspects of engineering. I think I was actually look, listening to you awestruck and at how you were handling and explaining such complex things with so much ease. And even for a non-engineering mind like mine, I was able to make a lot of sense of everything that you were saying. Thank you also for speaking to me about your books. Thank Ashutosh, you again thank you and so good luck. Yeah, thank you, Ashutosh. I know we packed uh, uh, a lot of things here, but uh, it is a subject that has uh, consequences over millennia. So Absolutely. we tried our best here. Uh, much Absolutely. appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.